gunfire announces the arrival of the second body. Shortly after we left this funeral cortege, it was targeted in an airstrike, killing four of the mourners. Kia ora, welcome to this episode in Season 2 of Recovering. I'm Frank Ritchie, church minister, chaplain and radio broadcaster. Recovering is a media chaplaincy New Zealand podcast highlighting the excellent work of Aotearoa New Zealand journalists. In each episode, I take the opportunity to sit with a leading journalist to discuss the story that's had the biggest impact on them both personally and professionally. In this episode, I sat down with Mike McRoberts. Mike is of Ngāti Kahungunu descent. Mike is no stranger to audiences of Aotearoa New Zealand television news, having presented the 6 o'clock news on TV3 for almost 18 years. Prior to that, Mike was a reporter. He began his career in 1984, diving into radio via RNZ. In 1995, he became a sports reporter for TVNZ and a few years later moved over to the home show. In 2001, he became part of the TV3 family as a reporter, so has been with TV3 through thick and thin for over 20 years now. Mike made the move to presenting within 60 minutes in 2001, taking up the 6pm news three years after that. But taking the role of news presenter was not the end of frontline reporting for Mike. Many of us know him as the newsreader who's dived into conflict reporting around the world. He's been present in conflict in Afghanistan, Iraq, Lebanon and other places. These have not been safe assignments. In this episode of Recovering, I had the honour of chatting with Mike about a conflict I have my own connections to. The situation that continues to regularly boil over between the Israelis and Palestinians. Mike has been on the front lines of that conflict in Gaza when it has been at its worst, including the particular year that we chat about here in 2014. Kia ora, Mike. It's a pleasure to have you in our humble little studio here in Penrose. Thanks for taking some time from what I imagine is quite a busy schedule. <laughs> Kia ora, Frank. I'm, I'm really pleased to be here. Yeah. Now, you mentioned just before we got into recording a documentary that you're currently working on, which I find fascinating. Do you want to tell us a little bit about it? Yeah, this is a documentary which will acknowledge 50 years of Te Reo in New Zealand. So it's 30, 50 years since the petition was taken to Parliament in 1972. And um, that instigated uh, Te Reo being used as a, an official language of New Zealand, but also it's, it's learning. So with the Kohanga Reo and the different kuras around the country um, and the way we've gone about recognizing this is to look at my own personal uh, to do journey which has been started back in 2013 uh, was has been frustratingly slow um, and much like the sea there's been high tides and low tides along the way um, and it's been good for me because I've had to take a real serious look at um, at what I'm doing with my to learning and uh, it's easy to become kind of muddled and 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 not be able to take it further and frustrated with that. Um, and I'm hoping that people will see how I've dealt with that and maybe um, maybe that'll help them with their journeys, uh, particularly for Māori. Mm-hmm. I think it's been – I think it's really hard for Māori. You know, we have this, this baggage that we carry around of expectation, um, frustration when it takes so long and, and it's difficult to learn. You know, when we expect that it'll come easy, it doesn't. Um, I think of, you know, when I've gone around the world and spent, you know, a reasonable amount of time in different places like, you know, 
France or um, or Brazil or Japan, and, and I've picked up bits of the language, um, the Middle East, Arabic, and yet at home I can't seem to be able to grasp te reo. You know? mm-hmm. Obviously, when you're in those places, you're immersed in it, and so that makes a big difference. But um, I think there is a lot of uh, post-colonization trauma there. Um, one of the most heartbreaking things I've found over the years when I've done stories for Te Wiki or Te Reo Māori is, is that in the Te Reo courses that are available, it's usually Māori who, who quit first, mm. who leave the courses. Um, and that's, yeah, that's just terrible. Uh, but I'm hoping that um, from this documentary, people might get an insight into, you know, um, my own journey, uh, which is it's kind of big, you know. Like a, one of the great things of being a newsreader is that you you have this almost invisible moat around you, you know, a, a safety blanket, if you like, and that you're not expected to have a pin, an opinion or or to show your true feelings. You know, you're there to be impartial and slightly stoic and, and deliver the news. Well, this is this is me laid bare, <laughs> and. That's one of the things I've come to learn too with to do learning is that I I need to open myself up and and actually be vulnerable um, because you don't you don't achieve anything unless you are and normally that's an easy thing to do I mean you you know uh, whether you're training for a marathon or um, or perhaps learning how to play the guitar there are going to be those early times when you know you're a complete learner and and it doesn't work um, but for some reason. Real and and our language is is something that makes you feel different, you know, because of that expectation. Mm. Mm. And it's uh, it strikes me that it would, there'd be a whole lot of identity wrapped up in it. If, if I think about myself learning languages, like let's say I decided to learn Spanish, I'd be wanting to learn Spanish because it would seem like it would be relatively easy to learn if I was going to pick up a language, and because it would just be cool. Mm. Uh, Arabic, because I love that part of the world, mm-hmm. but it's, it's still I'm still disconnected from it. Even as a Pakia in New Zealand, even Tereo uh, for me would be because of a respect um, and a desire to connect, but not because it's me. Whereas this seems like it would be deeply personal with so much identity wrapped up in it. It is. It is, absolutely. And and throw the fact that you're uh, a national figure, you know, so I read the news five nights a week and have done for the last 18 years, um, and Māori. You know, that that expectation on myself to be able, be able to speak the language, pronounce the words properly, um, not have anxiety about saying them has has been massive over the years. You know, when I first started as a journalist, I really did, I pushed against it because I, I had no knowledge. You know, my um, I grew up in Christchurch. My father's uh, Fano and my my Fano Marai is in um, is Putahi in Wairo. Uh He came down to Christchurch in a trade training scheme, Māori Affairs trade training scheme. So he he lost his connection. He'd already been you know. He'd already had the real whipped out of him at school anyway. but um, And then to fit in down there, of course, he became very Pākehā-fied to the point where um, I actually did a documentary many years ago on on him and his friends who were in Christchurch. And it was called The White Sheep because when they'd go back to Wairō uh, or home, um, that's what they felt. They felt like the white sheep of the family. Um, so, yeah, I, I pushed against that. I, I you know was determined to be a... Um, 
a journalist who was Māori and not a Māori journalist. And now I look back at that and I, I see it was a missed opportunity for me. I guess you, you come to these things in your own time. Um, and I'm so thankful that it's, it's coming to me now. You know, you're right, because it's not just a language. Um, it is my identity. What I, what I don't want to do, though, and, and I'm at pains to explain this in the documentary, is you know, I also know plenty of Māori men and women who identify strongly as being Māori who don't have te reo, who don't have the language. And that's okay, too. You know, um, uh, My whole journey started because Willie Jackson wrote in a... Um, piece in the, in the paper, he was bemoaning the fact that there weren't enough um, Māori in mainstream media. And he said something like, and don't, don't throw Mike McRoberts at me because he's not a real Māori. You know, <laughs> you know it's like, and that just burns, you know, that's, uh, that went to my absolute core. Um, and uh, I haven't yet, but we're going to catch up with him for the doco and mm. we'll have a chat about that. I mean, in the end, um, it was a a spur and an incentive that, that got me on to learning the language. But um, those things are hard to take. You know, you, it's hard not to take them personally. Mm, I'd imagine. What made you decide to say yes to doing the doco and something so openly vulnerable <laughs> in front of the nation? Oh, I've been asking myself that many times in the last few weeks. Um, um, if not me, then who, you know? Yeah. Um, and... And that sounds very selfless and righteous, but uh, it, it is for selfless reasons. It's there's an, uh, you know, I'm I'm that face that I think I can hopefully open this up for a lot of people, not just Māori, but you know, all, all New Zealanders. Mm. Um, because you know, one of the things we've we've had over the years, and that stopped now, thanks to the BSA, who said we will no longer take complaints about the use of um, te reo in, in in a news bulletin, which was good, just brilliant. Um, but over those years, you know, and we'd, we'd get those complaints and you'd see them um, and you think, do you know how hard this is to learn this language? You know, the anxiety I feel even, you know, pronouncing these words, you, you know, what it takes to do that and you just blow it off like that, you know, um, or just completely sweep away someone's identity and someone's culture and their and and their, and their language, you know, Um and that's you know that's that's something that we're we're still fighting against, and we've been told that uh, Tudor was a worthless language for years. Um, you know, I remember at school, and, and it wasn't even available to me at school to learn. But I remember asking about it once, and it was like, well, that, that's that's no use. I mean, you know, no one else speaks, no one else speaks Maori. <laughs> well, that's a, exactly the point. No one else speaks it, so we should. We should nurture it and make sure it never dies and um, make sure it's still part of us in, in generations to come. Uh, my own kids, my daughter is uh, Maya's doing law at um, Auckland University and she's also doing te reo. And, you know, she sees a future for her in, in representing Māori rights, you know, um, particularly around the environment, which I'm so proud of. Uh, my son... Uh, is, has also been learning with me in, in the weekends. Um, he's, you know, proudly wears his tamoko um, and identifies very strongly as Māori. And uh, I just, you know, I think, and I look at some of the kids these days, I've got Mokopuna, my brother's grandkids, who um, who are learning in, in kura and 
and have none of that baggage that, that we had. You know, they they have embraced it for what it is. They don't have any fears of what people might think about them because they speak it. You know, and, and um, I I love that. And I love where we're going. You know, um, similarly with Matariki, I, I I felt a real sense of excitement around Aotearoa and where we are, um, and Aotearoa, all of its appreciation of 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 that holiday and and what it means. There's a shift, and it, it, it's come up in a couple of the interviews for this season, unplanned. Uh, and I think I think you're almost in the nexus of it, because I think how we've understood journalism, how we've understood media, has been very Eurocentric. Mm. Uh, the idea of the disconnected journalist or the disconnected newsreader who is stoic who has no proximity really to the thing that they're talking about. They just come in objectively and just report on it and then go away. What I see you grappling with is something that is more Māori in its approach. It's more it's more integrated. You mentioned before the difference between being a journalist who is Māori versus being a Māori journalist. How do you see the difference? Well, I think the difference is is your identity and, and how you see your identity. And that's the thing that's changed for me. Um, it's funny, you know, I had a conversation years ago uh, and in America to be known as a Native American, they've put a, a cap on it. So you have to be like 7% Native American and prove that you are 7% Native American to say that you're Native American. And I just, I find that astonishing. You know, it's like if you have uh, a, um, a, if you're, Parents or grandparents or whatever uh, um, uh, are indigenous, well then, and you identify as being indigenous, then you are. There's no figure to it. There's no number to it. Um, so I see that difference between being a, a Māori journalist or a journalist who's Māori as someone who's accepted that part of their life and and embraced it. Um, it doesn't mean that every single story I'm going to do from now on is going to be a Māori story. That, that's just not going to happen. But I can use those skills um, and those, those attributes of being Māori to, to tell my stories. And actually, I have done for a long, long time. You know, I remember uh, I worked with uh, Paul Holmes at TVNZ on the Home Show for three years. And um, I actually found going to the Holmes program – a real challenge, even though I'd been a journalist for some 15 years and had traveled around the world by then, you know, the confrontational style and, um, uh, and the questioning of authority, I felt as a Māori, I felt a lot of those things quite difficult. And I speak to young Māori and Pacifica kids about that, you know, um, you know, we do have these things in us where it's hard to challenge authority or we're far too trusting. Um, and it was Holmes who, pulled me aside and said, listen, you know, yeah, those things are there. He said, but maybe turn this around a wee bit. Look at the other things you've got. You know, you're, you're Māori. You're, you're a great storyteller. You've got great empathy. You know, you use humour, all of those things that, you know, that we love about you. And those are the things you can build into your story. The other stuff, well, maybe rather than being your voice, make it the voice of someone else, be the champion. Mm. And I did that. So I did a lot of stories about, you know, elderly couples being ripped off by builders or insurance companies or, uh, you know, a, a disabled woman who got um, got shafted in some way, you know, and, and started standing up for them. I broke a pyramid scheme in South Auckland 
and the anxiety about walking into the middle of this pyramid scheme and, you know, saying, <laughs> I'm Mike McRoberts from the home show. But, but, yeah. um, but I, I was able to do that because I was standing on behalf of others. And, and so that's where I found that voice. And that's, you know, kind of how I got into conflict reporting too, I guess. You know, I mean, I hate war. Uh, war is the worst thing. It's the most, um, the basis of human spirit. It does terrible, terrible things to people. But going to those places and standing up for, for those who are there, for the innocents, um, and, and telling their stories is something I, I feel really uh, strongly for and uh, hugely emotional and um, big, big stories. And, uh, and they become a little bit of addictive, I guess, in a sense. But so I've taken those, those skills that um, I, I, I've you know, finally identified as being Māori um, and use those in other ways. Mm. Mm. For years, you're a journalist, then news reading. That's got to be a massive shift. So you're out on the front line, you're telling the stories, you're finding the stories, and then you're, you're news reading, which is a, another set of skills as well mm. and with its own pressures. But how was that shift for you? Uh, well, it was unexpected, to, to be honest with you. I mean, I, I never started in this game to, to be a six o'clock news presenter. Um, you know, I, um, I, I, well, I started in radio for a start. <laughs> um, and my whole thing was telling stories. That's all I wanted to do. Um, yeah. I mean, there's a, if, I, if I go back a few years previous to that, I, in my um, early teens, probably sort of 11, 12, going through until about 13 or 14, I actually had a terrible stutter. And if you'd said to anyone who knew me um, or my family uh, back then that, you know, one day I'd read the six o'clock news, they would have fallen about laughing. And me too. Um, I'm not sure what was going on with that, but uh, it was just one of those things I had. And um, and it took me, we, you know, we came from pretty humble uh upbringing so there was no money for therapy or anything like that and I just worked out one day how to get over it and that was to slow down and and think about you know what I was saying and and gradually I um I lost it which was good uh but it also when I think back to it it also shaped me in many ways too you know I um there's a photo of me that I love and I, I have it on my phone and I look at it every now and then it's me at about age 12 and I've got this yellow ribbon on my school jersey and the yellow ribbon is because I'm a, um, a librarian <laughs> you know very uncool but that was a safe place for me because it was the one place in the school where talking was discouraged um, and so I also because of that read a lot of books and and loved reading and then I also found too, when it came to you know being a journalist and doing things like life crosses, you know when you've got a, a speech impediment, a stammer, or a stutter, you think about everything you're going to say mm. before you say it because you don't want to run the risk of of getting halfway through it and and not knowing what you're saying or it going wrong. So that's how I started my high school years was this Māori kid, and there weren't many Māori kids in my year at school with a with a stutter, with a stammer. And finished it as as head, who won a couple of speech competitions. Wow! Um, and I went to a state school in Christchurch, Hamilton High, which was amazing. I had the best education, wonderful teachers, um, and that was a great launching pad for me to to go and do what I did. Um, yeah, and I still look back on it very fondly. 
Mm-hmm. My wife is a speech and language therapist, so she'll listen to this and be very proud that you managed to work <laughs> that out without a therapist. It's amazing. <laughs> yeah, well, I, you know, and and it doesn't happen for everyone, you know, um, and every everyone's story is 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 different. I've spent a bit of time with um, the uh, charitable organisation that I just can't think of the name now that um, that help people with um, speech impediments, and uh, and it's been really gratifying you know? um, and for them to, to chat to me and about my journey and that kind of thing has been been really good too and sometimes you know if I get really anxious I do have a little bit of a stutter you know and I can hear it in my I can hear it a little bit um, but uh, but not on the six o'clock news you know um, so to answer you know, there's a very long-winded way of uh, answering your question I, I wasn't expecting to go from being a journalist to a news reader mm. I didn't want to give up being a journalist either and and thankfully at three you know it's encouraged and so the great thing for me is uh taking that role as a six o'clock news presenter actually opened more doors for me as a journalist and so um you know it was a pretty good marketing look for their lead anchor to be you know in in um gaza or in afghanistan or you know in iraq um, and just just happened to be that that was the stuff that I liked telling as well. It was a real good point of difference for us. Yeah, certainly worked for me. <laughs> I was always compelled. <clears throat> yeah, uh, and was surprised to see the newsreader in the in the field in some of those spaces. I think it was a it was a big move and it was a good move. Um, it was a brave it was a brave move on yeah. behalf of TV three at the time, and I think that you know that kind of signified that organisation. Then it was small and quite mobile. Um, Always looking for an opportunity, and uh, and yeah, we we did things that people didn't expect us to do. Mm. Which brings us to the story that we're going to mm. uh, unpack. So the main story that we're going to hone in on, what is it? Well, I wanted to talk about Gaza, and it's a it's a place that I've been to many times now, probably six or seven times, I think. Um, I would have been there last year for the uh, for the conflict, but we're in the middle of COVID, and so. I didn't, but uh, specifically, I wanted to talk about 2014, which was a, a huge, um, huge conflict, and two and a half thousand people killed. It was it was dreadful, um, and and as soon as that started to to unfold, and we could see where it was heading, I, I went to my boss at the time. I said, I really need to be in Gaza, and you know this is a big story. And um, we were, we were at the time we were between head of news um, positions, so we we were kind of in uncharted, mm. unresponsible territory. <laughs> it was. I remember it being. We won't unpack the details, uh, but I remember it being a tricky time at, at TV Three. It was. It was. Um, and. I kind of might have indicated that I would go there but stay on the Israeli side of the border, but that was never my intention. <laughs> um, I'd been into Gaza, you know, a number of times. Can, and so, <laughs> Can I ask how you got in? Because I, I was there in 2012, mm-hmm. uh, twice. Uh, the second time was when, uh, just as they kicked off Operation Pillar of Defense. Right. Uh, I was there with with tear fund, and we we were in the middle of the protest in the West Bank with the tear gas and mm. and the Molotov cocktails, etc. It was quite an experience. But trying to get into Gaza, that just seemed really hard. Like we, I tried, yeah, but I just couldn't. I couldn't do it. So, 
Yeah. Without revealing too much, depending on what you feel safe to reveal, how did you get in? Well, it, it's quite simple. There's, it's not a it's not a secret. Um, you can't do it without the cooperation of the Israeli government. Mm. I mean, you've got to cross the Eris border, and um, and there's a system in place of doing that. And to be honest with you, I, I didn't think that they'd let us in. I mean, yeah. why why would they? Um, but the day that we arrived. The first thing we did was drive from Tel Aviv to um, to Jerusalem, and I I'd already had already had journalist credentials um, uh, in in Israel, and so I just renewed those and got some new ones for my cameraman who'd never been in a situation like this before. Wow! Yeah, and I had you know kind of like gentle chats with him on the way over, <laughs> and uh, and I said, listen, you know, I'm going to put us forward. To cross the border, it probably won't happen. But you know, um, we'll, we'll carry on and, and keep working and do some stories on this side. And, and we did. And I think the first live cross we did, there was a, a missile exploded above us, yeah. um, and it, it got um, got picked up by the Iron Dome, which uh, was one of those little moments that went everywhere, went viral, as they say. <laughs> um, and we interviewed uh, a couple of soldiers, a female soldier, and you know, what well, I I just I. I guess one of the compelling things about that conflict is is just the astonishing emotional level um, that's there. The hatred, you know, let's let's not beat around the bush. The hatred um, by some, not all, and and I guess you know when you go into those situations, you look for the. Uh, I gravitate towards the light, you know, the 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 people who are doing stuff to make a difference, who are trying to help a, a population get through. Um, I had a, a really good contact in Gaza, uh, Mohammed, who ran the World Vision office, and uh, I'd done a bit of work with World Vision in the past, and so I knew if we were able to cross the border or, or go through the crossing, that um, would be well looked after. And so we we put forward our names, and um, and totally out of the blue, we'd only been in there for about two days. I get a phone call saying we could cross. And when I got down to the crossing, there were seven other crews there. Um, John Snow from Channel 4, um, Lise Doucette, who's a good friend of mine from the BBC, uh, uh, Peter Stefanovic from Channel 9. Um, they kind of just, it felt like they'd just got a handpicked a bunch of us. Um, but they also, you know, they're all superb journalists in their own right. Um, I thought, wow, this is <laughs> this is pretty good, and so we I, I messaged uh, Muhammad, and and sure enough, when we got through the um, the crossing, he picked us up, and we were straight to work. And uh, it was the devastation. The um, it, it's a very small place, you know. It's um, I think it's about uh, forty kilometers long and about sixteen kilometers wide, and you've got over two million people there, two and a half million. So it's one of the most densely populated areas in the world. So when a bomb falls, you know, the 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 destruction and the devastation and and the death is is massive. And that's what what was happening. We were we got a, a hotel down by the uh, down by the sea on the waterfront. It was an area where the other journalists were staying too. They're in a different hotel to us. Um, our hotel, we they put us on the sixth floor because they thought we'd get great vision of um, you know of the rockets being launched and stuff like that. Although every night when the Israeli um, navy was firing missiles, they'd go straight over the top of us, and so there wasn't a lot of sleep to be had. And you'd, and um, <laughs> Simon, the 
the uh, cameraman with, uh, I was with, he was a bit like the, the proverbial frog in the, the pot of boiling water. You know, it just got heavier and heavier and more intense and more intense. And he just did an incredible job of, of filming it all. There were um, crazy moments. Um, and, and people ask you, what, you know, why you go to these places? Why would you go and do that? You know, this this particular conflict, and as I said, I'd had a history with it, and so I, it, it was in me. You know, I, uh, there was something about it. Um, four or five years previous to that, I'd been on a Christmas holiday with um, with the kids, and a smaller conflict had kicked off, and I thought, this is pretty big. Um, and we went over, and I remember sitting the kids down, and Ben was 10, I think Maya was 8 at the time, Ben said, why are you going over, Dad? And um, um, it could be dangerous. And and uh, so I was starting to have that awareness of, you know, what their dad was doing and where I was going. And I said, yeah, it could be. I said, I'm, I'll be really careful, though. And and if I go over there and, 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 and others like me from around the world go over there and tell the story of what's happening, hopefully we can bring around a, a ceasefire and so that innocent, you know, men and women and children don't get killed or, or injured. And I said, that's always the... The end game here is to try and bring around a ceasefire. And as it was, that 2010 conflict, I got over there and I think we'd been there for like two or three days. I'd filed a couple of reports and that's exactly what happened. There was a ceasefire. I remember ringing home and Ben going, oh, dude, you did it. <laughs> <laughs> that's right, son. Your old man did it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but um, but on this particular occasion, you know, 2014, it was so horrific you know, the hotel that we were staying at, I don't know if you remember, but there were four um, Palestinian kids killed uh, when they were hit by a, a mortar uh, who were playing soccer on the beach that was just in front of our hotel. And um, and I remember one of the a direct hits uh, um, from a drone attack not far from us, and we went round and, um, and just the, the dust and the mayhem, and there was an ambulance there, and I thought there may have been some some survivors. So, I was I was talking to the the uh, ambulance driver, asking, you know, "Is there someone inside that I can talk to to find out what happened?" And he and he was shaking his head and said something about hands and feet. And he opened the door, and it was just a bunch of hands and feet. Um, and you 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 never forget that stuff, mm-hmm. you know. Um, but then I met some amazing people, you know, who uh, with the courage and um, and determination to help others. Um, we went into Shifa Hospital and in the children's ward and I met this uh, seven or eight-year-old girl. Her name was Maha and she'd been hit by shrapnel in the back of the neck. Most of the family had been killed. I think she had a sister who was somewhere else in the hospital. Um, and she couldn't be moved because um, they didn't have the equipment to, to deal with her. To, um, and so we put that story out there, and and all of this was was building a momentum of of awareness for the public. So when I went over, you know, it was a big story, a big story for us. But obviously, when I got there, it was our lead story, and very quickly it became the lead story on TVNZ too. Even though they didn't have um, a reporter there, it became the lead story in the Herald and and stuff as well. And so by the end of the week, you know, everyone was was following this conflict in much the way the same way as they did with the start of the Ukraine war this year. Um, I think John Key got up in Parliament and, you know, um, spoke out against the violence on both sides, you know, uh, and there were these huge rallies, um, huge protests up and down the country. 
eventually there was a, a ceasefire, you know, and that's the, I guess it's a genesis, it's the most noble thing you can be part of when you affect a change like that or, you know, um, bring something to people's consciousness that you can save lives, literally save lives. There's an instinct in journalists like yourself that, well, fascinates is the wrong word, but it fascinates me. Um, it came up for me quite starkly with the Christchurch shooting. Mm. And I then interviewed a year later six of the Christchurch journalists who were first on the scene. We wanted to interview them because they were reporting on their home. Uh, and it's that instinct, just like most first responders, to run towards the danger rather than away from it. Because as safe as you might try to be in Gaza, it's not a safe place to be in that situation. What drives you towards the danger? I mean, because the talk of noble outcomes is great, but there are still other people to tell that story. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's a very good question. Um, I don't know. I think um, – Maybe it's naivety, but I just have a belief that I'll be okay, you know, um, that I'm I'm doing the right thing and it'll be okay. Um, it's funny, I'm sure this will come as no surprise to you whatsoever, but I've had people come to me over the years and say that God is looking after me, you know. It's <laughs> bloody handy when you're hopping on a plane to go into the Middle East. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, I... I know I've been incredibly lucky over the years. You know, I've, uh, it does start to become a numbers game after a while. Um, and there have been situations where I've just said, well, I don't think it's worth it, you know. Um, not many, but but it's just been a, an instinct, a gut instinct. And I guess you, you go on that a lot as well. Uh, it's funny you should mention the mosque shootings because probably the feeling I felt um, – in Gaza in 2014, I've only felt since uh, when I covered the mosque shootings. And it's just this, um, although the mosque shootings are slightly different as well because it's my hometown too. And, you know, as soon as I stepped off the plane, I felt this enormous shame and um, sorrow and guilt. And um, and then to see, you know, uh, night after night, standing at that floral tribute, presenting the six o'clock news, the the outpouring of love and um, manakitanga, the, the welcoming, uh, showing the Muslim population that they were welcome in Christchurch and that, you know, this was their home too and and all of that. It was it was actually, I found that harder to deal with than the deaths because it was so, um, so emotional. And that's one of the things I think you, one of the things I, I learned early when covering conflicts and, I've, you know, I've been to many now and also, natural disasters. I mean, you know, a place like Haiti with the earthquake where you, you go there and they're picking up bodies from the side of the road with a rubbish truck and um, taking them to the dump and, you know, they're just a total undignified way. Uh, you know, just you, you learn pretty quickly that it, it's, you know, it's not really about the dead. Um, and that's a, it's a hard thing to say, but, you know, that's it, there are a number what the story is and, and what you're there to tell is, is the living and how they're coping with it um, and and how can we help them. Um, the memorials and what have you will come later, but at those, you know, the white hot 
aftermath of something like a, an earthquake or or a shooting. It's it's the people who are, are living. That's the story. The average person doesn't deal with this stuff. <laughs> no, this is this is heavy stuff. I remember uh, when I was there in 2012, my first visit, and there was no conflict going on when I first visited uh, <laughs> Israel Palestine. It was it was it was a good jaunt, um, but I spent time because of what I was doing, listening to people on both sides, going into a couple of the hot spots. It wasn't till the later that we got involved in the conflict more closely, but it rocked my faith, and it rocked my faith because. I like to think I'm a person of hope, and faith ultimately is a story of of hope. Uh, But I got into that place, and if I was going to be honest about my subconscious, going in, I thought, I would have said, hey, the only reason this conflict still exists because they haven't listened to the answers I've got for them. And then you get into the (laughs) middle of it, and you realize that that conflict's not going anywhere quickly. And you've got two irreconcilable narratives of history and identity that just don't seem to be able to come together, even though they're two amazing cultures. That rocked me. And I had to do quite a bit of work rebuilding my understanding of, of faith and, and myself. Uh, you've experienced that in a much bigger way than I could. Coming back from that stuff into just everyday Kiwi life can seem inane. How do you... How do you come back from those stories? Yeah, um, it's not easy, and it, it it can mess you up. Absolutely, mm. you know. Um, funnily enough, uh, we had a, a reasonably sized team covering the the mosque shootings in Christchurch, and um, but most of them had never been in a situation like that and faced that kind of emotional outpouring. Um, and I, I had a chat to a lot of them afterwards and said, listen, in a couple of weeks, you're going to probably feel really flat. And I've done um, some training in trauma and dealing with trauma as a journalist. Um, and that's because you know, at, the mo- at, the, at that time, you're, you're dealing with something that is vital. You know, it's, you know everyone wants to know. Um, and the huge emotions, you know, you're, you're absorbing them. You, you know, you, um, you have to absorb them and you try not to let that, tip you over because you've got a job to do. And then in a couple of weeks, you know, you're up in Whangarei interviewing some guy who paints his letterbox a funny color or whatever, you know, and, and life just, just doesn't, the, the gravity of it, the, you know, the, the um, vitalness of it isn't there. You kind of wonder what you're doing, you know, and um, I've seen that with a lot of people, uh, friends who have, um, who have reported on, you know, have, have been... And you see it a lot with people who do this full time, like they are in those you know, war zones and stuff, full time. And that's why the burnout rate is so high. It's not so much the time spent in theatre; it's the time out of it, mm. and trying to adjust and trying to make sense of the world. Um, I always found it remarkably easy at the start. You know, I uh, I'd get off the plane, and the next day I'd be walking the kids to school on the Waka Waiwai. You know. Um, but then the Christchurch earthquakes happened, you know, cause, because you had the sense you'd come back and, you know, that was over there and this is here and, you know, the two don't, the, the, the two are so extreme. Then the Christchurch earthquake happened, that was massive. Um, again, you know, my hometown, my, my brother was a sign writer and was in the city at the time and, um, and you know, w- with all the dust and everything, he, when everyone was running out, he ran in to see what he could do to help and 
found his way, picked his way around the the center of the city by recognizing signs that had painted, mm. and then um, helped save a woman who'd been trapped in a bus that had been crushed, and he had to he had to step over three people who had been killed to do it. Um, and when I heard that story, I, I just rang him immediately because you know I mean I, I'm I'm used to dealing with that, and when I say I'm used to dealing with that, I've, you know you never get used to dealing with it, but you go to a a big natural disaster or um, or a war zone, you kind of on the on the flight over there, you you're, you're gearing yourself up for for what's going to happen. But it's the reporter who you know goes to a, um, a car crash and you know Spaghetti Junction and and sees someone dead, or um, or it's you know my brother who has to step over three people who've been killed to save someone. Um, they're big things and uh, they're shocks to the system, and so having dealing with that is you know it can be hard. There have been lots of times over the years where, you know, I've dealt with it badly. I've, I've probably drank too much. You know, um, I felt that I, as long as I talked about it um, and got it off my chest, it'd be okay. But often, the talking about it came too late. You know, it needed to be done at the time, not you know, three weeks later when you've you've had a bottle and a half of, <laughs> of Merlot because <laughs> it's not really. Not really helping, um, and people don't know. People don't understand anyway. So you're much better to talk to people who are around you at the time, and and that's why I encourage you know our journalists to do when we're in the middle of big things, even even if they're not um, life and death. You know, even something like the Rugby World Cup. Just mm. talking to my colleagues about the All Blacks losing, <laughs> <laughs> um, but dealing with those things, you know, so that you know it's not going to hit you when you get back. You're not kind of feeling flat, and you know. Or, or even just recognizing that that might happen is is a is a big change. Yeah, well, I mean, even dealing with a rugby game, you're dealing with uh, with huge emotions. Uh, even if you're not so into the rugby yourself, other people's huge emotions. Yeah. When I think about political journalists and the constant need to be on the scene, when I think about uh, new journalists who are assigned to go and do the death knock to find out from a family who's just lost a loved one how they're how they're feeling. When I think about journalists who turn up at local government stuff who might get abused because they're asking some questions that someone doesn't want to get asked. Wherever you look for journalists, you're going to find people are encountering, uh, whether it be the huge sort of trauma you've encountered or just small traumas going on all the time. Yeah. How did you come back then from, say, just thinking about if you talked about it, uh, but doing it too late on the booze, how did you find a healthier way of being? Uh, Running's helped me. You know, so I run a lot. Um, so physical activity. Uh, it's the old thing. When I started helping other people, I, I sorted out a way to help myself. Um, you know, when you are offering advice on how to get over trauma, you look at how you're dealing with trauma yourself. <laughs> you go, well, maybe I should be you know, practicing what I preach here. Um, and I guess to just experience and aging, you know, um, you you start having different priorities in life and um uh or or thinking that you know um this might be the last time I, I get to cover a story like this or um yeah you just it, it affects you differently you know um i'm a different person to who i was 20 years ago when i started doing you know a lot of this stuff and that's the great thing about what we do as as journalists, you know, is um is we 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 just keep learning, you know, and and you only get better. Um, 
it's not like you you get a you hit a point where you have a, a use by date. It's um, you can do this. You know, the, your, the longevity is completely in your hands. And you know, we've got some young uh, Māori journalists interns at work at the moment um, who are on a, a program with a you know sort of uh, with us and other newsrooms around the country. And one of them taught me seventeen. He taught me something the other day about manakitanga. You know. Which was great. I thought, wow, I've learned something here, you know. Um, and that was, you know, I always thought I was a you know, decent sort of person and kind and that kind of thing. And he said, oh, that's manakitanga. That's that's in you, you know. That's that's what you do. And so, okay, <laughs> you're right, you know. And I look at my brothers and they're exactly the same. And, um, yeah, so those sorts of things are, um, are really gratifying. You know, I um, – and I think we we become better storytellers because of it. You know, we just you know you keep adding to your depth and 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 how you bring those stories to light and um, and the stories that you look to tell in the first place. You know, there's always two sides. There's always you know something that hasn't been said or you know maybe a, another point of view that we need to look at and that kind of thing. And I I love that stuff. Yeah, mm. that's why I'm loving the shift in Aotearoa. You know, you've got you've got guys like yourself, women who've been around for a long time on the scene, and that experience adds so much richness to the storytelling. And then you've got these young journalists coming through who are owning their identity as Māori or Pacifica or Asian or whatever they bring to the table. And I think that colour and that diversity is just going to enrich our storytelling in New Zealand. Yeah, it's it's long overdue. You know, I was worried. About ten years ago, I looked around and thought, "Wow, um, you know, because journalism wasn't a well-paid job, and the only people that could do it, you know, came from a, um, a level of society that could afford it, and it wasn't reflective of who we are as a nation, or even, you know, um, you know, they would show pictures of Auckland. It'd always be Ponsonby Road. It's like, <laughs> yeah, we've got to get past that. You know, there's a huge swathe of Aucklanders who live elsewhere, and and they're quite different. You know, they're have different um, goals in life and, and different priorities. And, you know, I'm really thankful that we are starting to reflect that. Uh, but it's it, it's interesting times, you know. Um, there will always be pushback um, and there will, there will always be a little bit of trepidation and um, uncertainty about how we do that. Uh, but I think the way we're going about it, you know, at the moment is, is good um, and – it it feels like a natural kind of shift to that, um, a natural kind of opening up of of um, of our airwaves, if you like. Yeah, mm. it's really good when you think back to the wobbles TV three had in its newsroom uh, there for a while, and it felt like all media was about to uh, collapse to a degree, and then the beginning of COVID, where so many newsrooms again shrunk. But now we're a couple of years later, and it feels like things are starting to flourish. And it comes from, and I'll put it on the table, the state money given that some people think is some massive conspiracy. <laughs> but to see the Tirito Journalism Project injecting these young people into the mix is so good. Which leads us to our last question. You've somewhat answered it. Where do you see media in Aotearoa New Zealand going into the future? Yeah, that's a big, big question. Um, I feel far more optimistic about it now than I did um, a while back, even a year ago. And the reason I say that is because, you know, in in this evolving 
change that we're seeing, like with Matariki, for instance, I just feel there are more opportunities there to show ourselves uh, as a nation. And and I think that um, there's going to be an increasing demand for those stories and and for, for people to know that identity. Um, you know, we're, we're great ones for saying to people when they're over, oh, what do you think? You know, <laughs> well, yeah, it's time we ask ourselves, well, what do we think? You know, how are we getting on? Are we are we are we doing doing well with this? And I feel like we're we're growing as a nation to do that, um, and 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 looking at ourselves and going, oh yeah, okay, yeah. I I don't know what platforms are we working on, and you know, I mean, um, hopefully there's still a place for the six o'clock news, but but I don't know. I mean, I've, this is a job I've been doing now. This is my eighteenth year, and it's crazy. You know, you go out to well, not even schools anymore. You go to universities and you meet people who have only ever known you reading the six o'clock news. <laughs> it's like, well, okay. <laughs> you know? But I I think for my own personal journey, um, you know, obviously it's it's changing as I've spoken about, you know, my um, embracing of Te and and Te Ao Māori. Uh, that's going to change me as a journalist. I already feel like it's it's given me a whole new lease of life. You know, I've got a whole other direction I can I can I can go in and and bring all this stuff with me because that's the great thing you just when you go through these careers you just collect 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 and 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 it's all with you um and so I'm I'm really thankful for that and if I look across the the, the media spectrum I mean we're all kind of doing that you know um uh we've we've faced some of the craziest times the world's ever seen uh, and we get through this and and who knows what's on the other side. It, it doesn't feel like anything's going to slow down, though. It never does. It just seems to be getting mm. faster and faster. This one catastrophe or whatever after the next, and and keeping a, across that, and 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 being able to tell those stories, um, have an audience to tell them to, is uh, is is what I'm looking forward to. You know, um, so yeah, I, I I think we're in good shape. I think we'll get even better, mm. and I feel optimistic about the future. I'm glad. I want to close by saying, just saying thank you. Thank you for your longevity, uh, for <laughs> staying in the game when you've been through some experiences that would eat most people up and to then bring what you've learned from that to the table for your audiences and then for other journalists coming through. Uh, your space, I think, in New Zealand media is uh, has been significant and is significant. And to see you continuing to learn to continue to develop your own sense of your identity and to bring that to the table so that others can go on that journey too, I think is really valuable. So thank you. Sure, thank you very much. Nga mihi nui, Mike. Thank you for generously taking the time for this kōrero. Thanks to Radio New Zealand for hosting this series and thanks to you again for listening. I appreciate it. Also, a big thanks to Josh Couch and Steph Soul for producing this podcast and Mick Andrews for his audio editing. If you appreciate this podcast, please give us a five-star rating and share it with someone else who'd like it. And remember to follow to catch future episodes. At Media Chaplaincy New Zealand, we value our media and we demonstrate that by offering free, independent and confidential support for media professionals. So if you work in the media industry and want to chat with someone who gets it, head to mediachaplaincy.nz to arrange a catch-up. The coffee's on us.